Luke chapter 7, if you will turn there. Uh, I've mentioned before that there are four episodes in this chapter. We're on the third episode today. The first one was that uh, incredible story of the faithful Roman centurion who had the servant who was dying and uh, Jesus uh, interacted in, in, uh, uh, for a, a Gentile and um, saved that servant. And then the second episode was the widow of Nain that we saw last week who had, had actually lost her only son. And the, the double emphasis of that uh, story, a widow who has lost her only son. So here is a woman who has no husband. She's already lost a husband and now she's lost her only male child, which in that era, in that culture, uh, frankly, in any era, in any culture, that that has a uh, an additional set of circumstances that are difficult to deal with. So uh, today we're going to get to another of the episodes and it has to do with John the Baptist. We're going to look today at verses uh, 18 to 35 and uh, struggling with what I was going to entitle this lesson, I went through three iterations. First, I said, what do you really think of Jesus? And then I went to doubting John. Uh, then I went to what do you do when doubt comes calling? So you'll see where I, my brain, for better or for worse, was training on this. Uh, but uh, beginning in the 18th verse of Luke, what we encounter is John the Baptist, and he's doubting. Uh, now, I wouldn't—I would frankly be stunned if there's anyone in this room that has not gone through a period of doubting. Maybe it's from the loss of a, a family member that's difficult to take under any circumstance. And I will say uh, on the front end that for today's lesson, I'm, I'm leaning heavily on Phil Riken's commentary on Luke. I want to give credit where credit is due. Phil, uh, in my humble opinion, has one of the better uh, commentaries on, on Luke, and uh, I'm certainly leaning on him today. But Phil lists several reasons, uh, several doubts that, that might come in. It, we may be questioning the future. Frankly, if you turn on Fox News for five minutes, uh, you will be wondering about the future and what it's going to look like. Uh, doubts about our abilities to handle whatever is, is coming along. Doubts about our relationships uh, within marriage, outside of marriage. Doubts about our health. Doubts about the meaning of life. Doubts about the, tr uh, the, the truth of scripture. Is, is uh, the Bible really absolutely inerrant and infallible? Hopefully no one in this church would be able uh, to struggle with the answer to that one. Uh, but sometimes, even though we know the answer to that question, yes, the scriptures are, are true and utterly trustworthy, but are there times when we are drawn down to question that? The resurrection, uh, is there really a resurrection? How many unbelievers have to come up to us and uh, question those things? Uh, if there is a resurrection, in fact, will we rise again? Is there really a second uh, experience of that? Is there really a heaven? I mean, you could go on and on and on with the reasons uh, that sometimes we have these doubts, but where do they come from? Why do we have these moments, these times of doubt? Well, sometimes it can be an assault by Satan. Uh, sometimes it's, uh, if you're bored, 
I, I firmly believe that by shutting the universe down for the last two and a half years, uh, there are many, many people who, through boredom of having nothing whatsoever to do, went into any number of bad directions, uh, bad habits, bad, uh, bad thinking, a lot of things. And perhaps in the Christian arena, perhaps uh, the boredom has led uh, to some doubting. Uh, when you're tired, you will not think as straight as when you are fresh and no longer tired. When you're suffering physically, uh, you will have a tendency to be less capable in your thinking. If you're grieving the death of someone that we love, if you're under a spiritual attack, if you're in destructive patterns of sin, uh, you will often doubt because you are in such a pattern because you are choosing to be. You, you know, if you're a believer, you know uh, that the Holy Spirit is, is uh, tapping you on the shoulder or more. And you've either, in order to continue a pattern of sin, you've either got to quench the spirit, grieve the spirit, or just completely ignore the spirit altogether. That's going to lead you, obviously, and not surprisingly, into periods of doubt. Uh, perhaps you are disappointed with God. Uh, why doesn't he straighten this out, that out, uh, do this, do that, whatever? I think that is probably John the Baptist's problem here. So in Luke chapter seven, when we get uh, to this 18th verse, uh, we're going to begin that process. Let me just read the first two verses, verses 18 and 19. Say the disciples of John reported all these things to him. These things being the things Jesus has just done, the, the issue of the centurion, the fact that, uh, that Jesus went in and actually uh, brought a, a a young person, a, a, the son, the young young son of this uh, widow, back to life from the dead. Those are pretty remarkable events. And his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, are relaying this message. John the Baptist is in a prison fortress of Herod, probably the one uh, down by the edge of the Dead Sea. Uh, if It's a spectacular thing to see, but it would not have been a spectacular place to be. And that is where John the Baptist is. His disciples are coming and relaying these things in verse 18. Uh, they're reporting all of these things to him. And here's John's response in verse 19. Calling two of his disciples to him, he sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, when you think about that for a minute, it's, it seems a little odd. The, the disciples have come to John the Baptist and said, uh, here's what Jesus is doing. He's raising people from the dead. Uh, he's, he's curing illnesses, he's, he's, he's preaching, he's teaching a lot of wisdom. And John the Baptist looks at all that, takes that in and says, uh-oh, I blew it. Uh, maybe I, uh, I brought the wrong guy out and baptized the wrong guy. Who, who's, why is he doing these things rather than doing something else? Uh, what is additionally strange about that is if there's anybody in the early part of the Gospels who seems to be rock solid, it's John the Baptist. Uh, this is a guy literally from the womb who worshiped Jesus. You remember the story of, of Elizabeth and Mary getting together and uh, John the Baptist in, in the womb leaps for joy. Uh, he's set apart to witness to the coming Messiah. This is the man who twice in the first chapter of the Gospel of John 
says, behold, the Lamb of God. He's not equivocating. There's no indication whatsoever that he was anything but extremely direct and completely confident in his declaration. But he's having a dark night of the soul. He's imprisoned. He's probably uh, wise enough to understand that there's a good chance he's not going to get out of that prison. And indeed he is not. He's going to be killed there, murdered there. He couldn't see what God was doing. He couldn't be outside and witness these things. He had his disciples coming in, talking to him and so forth and so on. Uh, but he couldn't lay eyes on it. Uh, you get somewhat of an analogy perhaps with Thomas when Thomas uh, has the message that Jesus has risen from the dead. He says, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. I'll believe it when I can actually place my hands in the wounds that are indicated. Uh, but more importantly, he couldn't see it in his own soul. Uh, and again, I, I, this is not... Uh, unique to John the Baptist. There, there are times with, uh, with all of us, I think, when, when our faith, uh, which is a, a fluid thing, uh, by the way, that's why you read and study the Bible and, and need to make a habit of doing that uh, to, to strengthen and deepen that faith. But here is something else that is troubling John the Baptist. He has already prophesied that the Messiah would come with the Holy Spirit and fire. <coughs> he, even, he even says he's, he's going to come with a winnowing fork in his hand. That's from the third chapter of Luke, verses 16 and 17. That's probably uh, an, an additional and maybe even the most significant reason that John is doubting. What John meant about having a winnowing fork in his hand and coming with the Holy Spirit and fire, the Bible does not unpack. However, it would seem pretty straightforward and logical that he's meaning something very dramatic, uh, very judgmental. Uh, certainly, he's, you won't be able to miss the fact that he's coming uh, to make a lot of people very unhappy. Yet here he is, going around, healing people, helping people, uh, even bringing them back from the dead. Uh, the Pharisees are angry with him. A lot of people are angry with him, but he's not appearing to take them on. Uh, he's not clearing the Romans out of, out of Palestine. He's not doing any of these things that perhaps John the Baptist assumed he would be doing as soon as his feet hit the ground and he started ministering. So he calls his two disciples and he says, uh, go ask, what's going on here? Are you in fact the person that I hoped you would be? Are you the Messiah? Are you Jesus? In this passage we're going to look at today, beginning in verse 20 through 35, Jesus is going to answer that question with three answers. But the question is perhaps the most important thing of all, is Jesus the Christ? Now we may not ask the question to ourselves in our own hearts in quite that fashion, but that is ultimately exactly what we're doing when we're doubting. Is Jesus really the Christ? Is he the Messiah? Is he the one who is to come? Or should we look for someone else? He's gonna answer it in three different ways. Uh, the first answer is gonna come in verses 20 to 23. Let's read those verses. 
And when the men had come to him, that is John disciples had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour, verse 21, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, verse 22, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That is, a, that is an incredibly strong response on the part of Jesus on any number of, of uh, levels and reasons. Uh, in verse 20, the disciples go to ask the question, the question that John the Baptist has sent them. Essentially, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Verse 21, uh, he was responded with dramatic uh, indicators of healing and raising from the dead and so forth and so on. But verses 22 and 23 are when Jesus instructs these men, go back, you go back and you tell John something for me. Now, if you were to stop right there and, and fill in the blank, what would you expect Jesus to go back and tell John the Baptist to assure him that he is in fact the Messiah? Uh, it, it may not be what in fact Jesus tells them. Uh, what he gives is an excellent summary of the miracles he's already performed here in chapter four. Uh, but they, they're building up uh, up to the point where the dead are raised to life. That was the last episode with the widow in Nain, whose uh, young son had died. Uh, and of course, therefore, yes, Jesus is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. But the clincher of all that Jesus says here is the very last clause in, in, his, uh, in his statement. Uh, to proclaim the gospel to the poor and needy sinners in verse 23, um, or excuse me, verse 22. I tell him that, that the poor have good news preached to them. Now we have, have seen already that, uh, that Luke, among the four gospel writers, Luke focuses much, much more than any of them on the notion of wealth and what to do with it, uh, the problem of it, frankly, uh, what is expected of, of issues of wealth, and therefore also those who don't have any of it, the poor. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, I've always heard it said that he spiritualizes uh, the poor in spirit. I don't call that spiritualizing because that is also a very, very true statement. Jesus comes to, to help and indeed save the poor in spirit. But in Luke, he says he comes to help the poor. And then you have all of, all of the uh, indicators and it's going to, we're gonna run into it over and over and over with unique parables, unique only to the gospel of Luke and many other ways where Luke is going to address the notion of the poor and what you do with them. That is those who are, uh, who are not well off, who are in a difficult situation. Uh, so the gospel of uh, going to the poor and the needy uh, is an emphasis of Luke and what Jesus is speaking here. And John the Baptist would understand this. 
is directly from the book of Isaiah. So if you, you can turn there, if you wish, I'm going to give you four or five passages, uh, but uh, you can just, if you're taking notes, you're welcome to take notes of this and, uh, and not turn, but I'm going to read you uh, where Jesus is getting these words. First, from the 35th chapter of Isaiah, verses five and six, Isaiah is uh, in verse 35. Now, when you get to verse 35 in Isaiah, that's, you're, you're getting to a very, very key end point of, of the first uh, large segment of that prophet's book. And he's, he's, he's starting to turn a page, as, as you probably know. In the 40th chapter of Isaiah, uh, you, get, uh, you, you get sort of the beginning of, of uh, flying on the wings of eagles, as it were. Uh, but in uh, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 35, Isaiah says this, Then, when the Messiah comes, in other words, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Uh, Jesus has already done these things. He's, he's, he's been healing. Uh, he's been giving sight to the blind and, and hearing to the deaf and the lame are walking and all of these kinds of things are happening. The blind, the deaf, the lame, and the mute are mentioned there. If you go back a little ways to Isaiah 29, Isaiah 29, just verse 18, says, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Again, another indicator. I go forward this time to the 61st chapter of Isaiah. Very first verse, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Uh, that's, a, that's a magisterial, uh, by the way, when you get to, um, to Isaiah, uh, I remember preaching through this book of Isaiah and from about verse or chapter 60 to the end of it, chapter 66, uh, is a stunning part of the book. We, we very appropriately uh, love chapters 52, 53 and, and the songs, so-called songs of the servant, which begin back in the chapter, chapters in the 40s. Uh, those are magisterial and uh, we bring them out appropriately uh, every Christmas and so forth and so on. But the last four or five chapters of Isaiah are, are incredibly insightful and rich to ponder. And here he's talking about preaching good news to the poor. Now, if we go back to chapter 26 in Isaiah, you get this in, in uh, verse 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Uh, finally, in Isaiah chapter 8, near the very front of the book, verses 14 and 15, 
say, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Uh, this is how the book of Isaiah begins, and it's, it's, it's very ominous, frankly, saying that when the Messiah comes, I don't think that everything is going to be gloriously fine. In point of fact, many are going to stumble. Many are going to be fall into snares because of this Messiah. Well, this is one aspect of doubting. What are we doing when we're doubting the, the truth of Scripture and what we read over and over? Among other things, we're questioning uh, who Jesus is. And this is not just an Old Testament uh, issue. Let me read from Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verse 33 the last verse of chapter nine says, as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Very, very similar to what Jesus has just told these disciples of John the Baptist and told them, go back and uh, tell John what you see and what I have just told you. And that uh, Pauline verse there in Romans chapter nine, the end of, of the, the chapter is spoken to you and to me uh, because I would imagine that, or, or at least perhaps not in every family, but there are many families where Jesus, the Messiah and the Bible and the church and all the things that the Christian church represent are stumbling points. Uh, they are difficult issues sometimes uh, Holidays bring that out more than any other time. Christmas, Thanksgiving, whatever. Uh, we're together and those things we have to dance around. Uh, perhaps we have uh, members of the family who, who want to make it a point uh, that they are not Christian and they don't intend to have you in their home if you're going to be doing nothing but talking about the Bible and all of these kinds of things. Uh, this is nothing new that John the Baptist is dealing with here. Now, a stone of stumbling is one thing. Doubting is perfectly normal. It's a sinful uh, issue. We should not do it. But, um, but when we do it, notice what John does. He says, you go to Jesus, go to the, to the fount, in other words. Go to the Messiah. I'm having a problem here. I'm, I'm sitting here in jail uh, give me something to go on. Go to the man himself. Uh, so the first answer is Jesus the Christ. Uh, Jesus tells them who he is and what he does. And he's saying implicitly there, therefore, John the Baptist, when he hears these things, he ought to get it. Uh, those passages, by the way, that we read from Isaiah. And remember, when Jesus first begins his public ministry in the synagogue, he goes up front, opens the scriptures to what book? To Isaiah. And he's preaching the same sort of thing. I've come to bring good news to the poor. Uh, this is not uh, something unique to Isaiah. We could go through every single one of the prophets in the Old Testament and you will see this. The book of Amos, for instance, uh, has a lot to say, uh, stridently spoken words about um, uh, what's going to happen to cultures that do not uh, take heed of the poor among them from a Christian perspective. Uh, 
So that's Jesus's first answer. I mentioned that they're going to, he's going to give three answers to take back to John the Baptist, uh, who are, is, is perhaps having a bit of uh, consternation. The, the second answer comes in verses 24 to 28. Verses 24 to 28 read like this. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Now, what he's going to do, uh, apparently people, uh, these messengers who came to Jesus from John the Baptist, it is known that John the Baptist has been proclaiming Jesus and he's been thrown in prison. And Jesus, perhaps, in order to, uh, to clarify in their minds that John the Baptist is... Don't think bad of him, Jesus perhaps is thinking. Uh, but in verse 24, he turns to the crowds and he says concerning John, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Verse 38, I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John. And then he concludes with a stunning statement. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Interesting way to conclude that particular uh, portion of this uh, chapter. He's giving uh, really a message, an answer that, that is saying that person who trusts in me is going to end up well. That is what I am here for. I'm here for faith. He doesn't bring that particular word in. Uh, at 24, the beginning of verse 24, he wants to underscore the faithfulness of John the Baptist. He doesn't want anybody thinking, oh goodness, what kind of a prophet is it that comes back and says, I don't know if I even baptize the right guy. Uh, that is not uh, a slam on John, Jesus wants them to understand. And all of verses 24 and 25, uh, John the Baptist is none of the things Jesus describes here. Jesus says, what did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Some kind of willy-nilly uh, proclamation of, of uh, a person who's going to say one thing one day, a different thing the next. That's certainly not John the Baptist. He's strident, he's, he's uh, consistent, and he's not, he's not shaken. He's courageous. Did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Well, we know John the Baptist was hardly that. Um, he, he was very much... Uh, uh, not a person who's hanging around the courts of a king. In verses 26 to 28a, he said, did you go out to see a prophet? He says, uh, yes, I can tell you that is in fact what you saw. And more, Jesus says, no prophet born of woman is greater. Uh, if you get to the book of Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament, chapter three, the opening verse, Malachi chapter three, uh, verse one, let me go ahead and just uh, read that. Malachi three, verse one. <clears throat> it says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. 
And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So 400 years later, this man, John the Baptist, is on the scene. So he, he, he holds a very unique position. He is an Old Testament prophet. He is the one the Old Testament says is going to come and declare that the Messiah is here. But he has a, clearly more than a foot in the New Testament. He's seen Jesus Christ, if you will, even from the womb. Uh, so this is a prophet of prophets and therefore not surprising that Jesus says no prophet born of woman is greater. He is the last and the greatest prophet before Christ. Uh, what made John the Baptist great was his calling. Uh, it's no different with, with preachers, with teachers, with uh, Christians in general. What makes us great, if that word should ever be applied to any of us, uh, is not that we are great or that we have earned or deserved this gospel of grace that's been poured out upon us, upon us, upon us. It's the calling that has been given to us to be able to represent the King of Kings in the world in which we live. That is what makes us great, if you want to use that word. Uh, what makes John the Baptist important is not who he is, the function he fulfilled, but who Jesus is. Who is it that uh, John the Baptist has come to inaugurate? It is Jesus uh, Christ himself. And then this utterly shocking statement at the end of verse 28, even the newest, the weakest Christian is greater than John the Baptist. That's what he's saying there. He's saying that every person in this room right now who is a believer in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of his or her life is greater in the kingdom than John the Baptist. Uh, it is very, very easy in the world in which we live that has, has uh, sort of shunted the church off to the side in a way. There, there are many people who see church as something that happens on Sunday and has no relationship whatsoever to Monday through Saturday. That's a tragic, tragic uh, way to, uh, to look at the world in which we live and the times in which we live. Uh, but uh, it is easy to think, well, who am I? I mean, I've, I've got um, this, that, or the other. Uh, that's not according to Jesus. Jesus says each one of us, each one of you uh, who believes in him as Lord and Savior is greater than John the Baptist. Why? Why would he say that? How can he say that? Very simply, because we have experienced the finished work of Christ. John the Baptist did not do that. John the Baptist is languishing here in a prison, doubting about Jesus, and his head is going to be severed from his body very quickly, very soon. He's not going to see the cross. He's not going to hear the rest of Jesus's messages. He's not going to be able to unpack all those glorious parables. He's not going to see the resurrection Sunday. He's not going to see Jesus uh, elevated into heaven when God the Father honors uh, the sinless life of Jesus Christ and his devotion to go to a cross in utter faithfulness. You and I know every bit of that and more. We have a privileged place in the history of salvation and that is something to take home and put in the bank. And by bank, I'm talking about in your hearts, in your minds, when doubts begin to, to come in for any of these reasons, understand Christian, who you are 
in the eyes of God. Now the third and final answer, goodness, uh, verse 29 to 35 here, uh, John, or, or Luke rather, is, is uh, I'll read these very quickly. <clears throat> when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. What Jesus does here to, for the third and final answer is he brings in a, a, uh, an illustration, if you will, from the life he has already experienced. And remember, we're in chapter seven here. This is early in Jesus's uh, public ministry. Uh, but... Um, the, the people are hearing, some are repenting, some are believing and are saved. That's verse 29. And verse 30, some reject the gospel. They've got the elder brother problem. They don't like the idea of grace. They think you've got to be, you, you've got to have to earn it. They think they have earned it. They think they're worthy. They're not going to stoop to some simple, simplistic message of grace. They don't even like the concept of grace. Uh, so in verse 29, those who are saved believe themselves to be unrighteous, that they cannot do it themselves. The beautiful passage in Luke chapter 18 about the tax collector in the temple. You remember the Pharisee is looking at, at the tax collector said to, the, to God, Amazing, but what's by these Pharisees? That I'm glad I'm not like that guy over there, that, that tax collector over there. Man, I am so glad. The tax collector over there won't even look up. He just says, I, "I'm a sinner. There's nothing I can do. I fall on your grace, Lord, save me." And that is what this story is about here in these concluding verses. Here, he goes in verses 31 to 35 to draw this analogy from daily life. Verse 31, what are the people of this generation like? They're like the unrepentant people. Those who will never listen to the gospel, those who will never accept grace, those who accept a need to overcome and deal with sin and repent, but they won't do it. Verses 32 and 33, no weddings, only funerals. That's their problem with John the Baptist. This guy, won't, he doesn't have any fun. Uh, he's dressed in those weird clothes and he's, he's eating that weird food. Uh, he's, not, he's not one of us. We don't like him for that. We wish he would come and drink wine. Then they turn to Jesus and they said, now look at Jesus. He's a party animal. Uh, they're upset with it. He goes and eats with tax collectors and prostitutes for Pete's sake. We can't have anything to do with that. In other words, you can't get there from here in the eyes of these people. Michael Wilcox says it this way wonderfully. The news of the kingdom will not fit in with men's preconceived ideas nor pander to their prejudices. It digs far deeper than their shallow understanding of the evils of Satan's kingdom and soars far higher than their low view of the glories of God's <coughs> kingdom. And he concludes in verse 35 with this bottom line, yet wisdom is justified by all of her children. 
What does he mean by that? In the context, I think it's pretty clear. The Pharisees, the elder brothers, the proud, the defiant unbelievers want Jesus to dance to their own tune, verse 32a, or to weep when what they think is tragic, verse 32b. All such people are foolish children who try to make God dance to their tune. I know what I want God to be, and if he's anything different than that, then I don't believe him. But the children of wisdom in verse 35 are those who are justified by faith alone, who are wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That's a quote from 2 Timothy 3.15. Just before Timothy starts uh, talking about the truth of scripture, utterly trustworthy and all of those things, the very verse that precedes that, the scriptures will make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Bottom line, come to Jesus and don't leave him and don't doubt him and don't question him. When those moments come in your life, do what John the Baptist did. We don't have Jesus on the earth to go to anymore, but we have his word, his inerrant, infallible, completely trustworthy word. Go back to it, believe it, steep yourself in it, deepen your hearts and minds in it and believe and praise the Lord because you've got much more uh, than John the Baptist ever had. Let's close in prayer. Father, uh, what an amazing uh, privilege you give us to be your children. Make us those who don't come to Jesus expecting uh, with a checklist what he should do, what we hoped he would do, but help us rather be those who simply accept what he tells us and believe in our own depravity that we cannot help ourselves. We need grace. We luxuriate in the grace of Jesus Christ and place our faith in him this day and forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.